welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember, if you're heading into work or otherwise just headed away from the radio, you can still hear today's full edition of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever it is you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and you can listen to us whenever or wherever you like. We want to start the show today and continue the show, in fact, with a single set of ideas. What do you think about, for instance, when you think about New York City? What do you picture? Maybe it's the Empire State Building or the former Twin Towers now replaced by the One World Trade Center. Or what do you think about when you think about Chicago? Maybe you think about the John Hancock Building or the Tribune Tower, a place that I used to work. Or maybe it's even Donald Trump's modern skyscraper. Cities are defined in our minds by their skylines. And here in Detroit, our skyline is about to change. Billionaire Detroit businessman Dan Gilbert wants to build a new skyscraper downtown and make it the tallest in the city on the old Hudson site. It would certainly leave his stamp on the city and mark the big changes he's already helped to facilitate. But what will a new structure look like in the sky here? Will it change the way we think of Detroit in our minds when we picture its skyline at sunrise? And should we be taking more consideration of the architectural implications of building something so large and imposing along Detroit's skyline? In other cities, those cities that I mentioned, New York and Chicago, for instance, developers sometimes endure months-long community meetings and regulatory hurdles before they're allowed to construct buildings that will fundamentally alter a city's look or its feel. Here, it seems we just kind of go along and allow those with the money to build to do what they wish. We want to spend today's show talking about how we should think about our skyline and how we ought to think through the process of it changing. Is it happening in a way that respects Detroit's history? Is it happening in a way that respects Detroit's future? Or are we just rushing to say, This is a sign of progress. Big buildings. Big buildings mean activity. They mean growth. They mean all of those things that we want to associate with Detroit. All hour, we're going to want to talk with you about that. What do you think about all of the all of the changes that are happening in Detroit and what those will look like in architectural form if we build the tallest building in the city on the Hudson site. If we build something in Cadillac Square, as Dan Dan Gilbert says he wants to do, the number, as always, is 313-577-1019 on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We're going to start, though, with a look back at the, con- at the construction of one of our most famous buildings, WDET's Ryan Patrick Hooper, recently spoke with Detroit Free Press columnist John Gallagher about the history of the Renaissance Center. That series of towers along the waterfront is one of architect John Portman's best-known projects in the massive building impacted downtown greatly over the years. A really controversial structure in many ways because of the way it's designed and also because of where it was placed across a boulevard from the rest of downtown. And originally, if you remember, there were these giant concrete berms out front that made it look like a compound that you weren't 
allowed into. Portman, the designer, recently passed away, and Hooper found out that a lot of the conversations we've had about Detroit in the past decade are often eerily similar to the revival-centric conversations we had starting in the early 1970s. You are about to see Detroit of the future. Renaissance Center, a riverfront development on a 32-acre site, breathtaking in its scope. A bold new master plan designed by one of the most exciting architects of our time. That's audio from a 30-minute special on the Renaissance Center that aired on WDIV back in 1973. You'll hear more of it throughout this piece. And the architect they're talking about is John Portman, one of the world's best-known and most influential architects who died on December 29th in Atlanta. He was 93 years old. He designed buildings all over the world, and of course here in Detroit with the Renaissance Center, built for $350 million in 1977. It's a plan so ambitious that it's backed by the faith and the funds of no fewer than 49 far-seeing corporations with significant ties to Detroit. The Renaissance Center, like many other of Portman's buildings, features soaring atriums that captivated communities where his buildings were built, but also had plenty of critics at the same time referring to his projects as concrete islands. Are you really a Detroiter unless you've been lost in the Renaissance Center before? It's pretty easy to do. General Motors occupies that building today and has spent hundreds of millions of dollars making it more accessible, not only to the public, but to the riverfront as well. Longtime Detroit Free Press reporter John Gallagher talks about what the expectations were when the building was first announced back in 1973. The expectations were very high, uh, even enormous. And in fact, if you go back and listen to some of the speeches that were made then, everyone thought this was going to produce revenue for the city and a lot of new jobs. A lot of that did happen, but, but the big expectation was that this was really going to enliven downtown in a new way, uh, lead to the rebirth of the city, and it did not do that. You might say that it actually sucked all the development out of downtown and put it in this one spot, which was isolated on the waterfront. Looking back on the coverage of the Rensen in the 70s, a lot of the words they used to describe the project are the same words that we use to describe the Detroit of the past decade. Just listen to this speech Henry Ford II gave about the Rensen. Ford was then the chairman of the board for the Ford Motor Company and was a critical piece of bringing the Rensen to fruition. Here he is. This downtown development that's going to take place here is being built by the people of Detroit and for the people of Detroit. And I'm convinced, and I know many other people are as well, that this will be a catalyst for the renaissance of Detroit. John Gallagher of the Free Press says there are certainly similarities between then and now, but today's revival-rich vocab surrounding Detroit comes with a more well-rounded portfolio of developments. If you go back and listen to some of the things that were said at the time, they do sound very similar to what we're saying now. Now, I, I suppose now you could say that it's a little more grounded in reality. It's not just one big showcase project like the Renaissance Center represented. But you're right, we've been talking about this comeback city for a long time now. Another promise the Rensen didn't deliver on? Increasing the access to the riverfront. Here's another cut from WDIV's TV special from 73 with more of that awesome narration by Dick Van Sice. Renaissance Center is destined to make Detroit's riverfront one of the most talked about landmarks in America with the practical aim of making Detroit a better place in which to work, to visit, 
and to live. In reality, the Rensen became a massive concrete barrier between downtown and the river, and Gallagher says that has more to do with our changing definitions for what an accessible riverfront means. I think decades ago, it meant building sort of high-end uh, officer residential towers on the riverfront, and that would take care of it. And now we understand it's got much more to do with, with uh, pedestrian space, the river walk, the Dequinder Cut, and some of the other ones that are, that are planned to bring people from those neighborhoods north of Jefferson Avenue down into the riverfront. MDOT's plans for I-375 involve not only making that expressway a surface street, but bringing it all the way down to the river. So we're much more in tune with connecting the waterfront to the rest of the city and not just building sort of high-end condos on the waterfront. Massive projects like the Rensen still capture the imagination of municipalities and their tax dollars. Late last year, Detroit real estate mogul Dan Gilbert broke ground on what will be Detroit's tallest skyscraper. The 800-foot, $900 million mixed-use building will sit on Woodward, where the old Hudson store stood for decades. John Gallagher covered that story for the Free Press. These mega projects like the Renaissance Center or what Dan Gilbert is going to build on Hudson site can be attractive. They can um, create destinations. They often create amenities for people. I'm thinking of Eaton Center in downtown Toronto, which has been quite successful. But they only succeed if they're part of a much broader urban uh, strategy. Uh, when done in isolation, like the Renaissance Center was done, they become island and not very helpful. The Renaissance Center is a mixed bag, but Gallagher says that architecture often is. Architecture tends to be a controversial art. And I think that uh, if you look at almost any famous architect, uh, Mies van der Rohe, Yamasaki, they were all controversial. They all had things that they advanced that were quite good, but other things that people criticized. So I think Portman did have a good career. I thought he uh, brought a lot of interesting stuff to the American skyline. I just think that the Renaissance Center, for a lot of reasons, did just not turn out the way we had hoped. Okay, that was WDET's Ryan Patrick Hooper speaking with the Detroit Free Press columnist John Gallagher. Coming up, we're going to talk about the future of our city's skyline, and we want to hear from you. Would you like to see a new skyscraper built in Detroit, or do you like to preserve the image we have already along the waterfront? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about Detroit's skyline and the architecture that defines that skyline. There's a lot of plans on the books right now to change that skyline in some pretty fundamental ways. And we are talking about how that should unfold. Is it something that we should just embrace and celebrate and say anything new, anything exciting is an addition to our skyline? Or should we be taking a more considered look at these proposals and thinking them through in terms of how they impact the skyline itself and downtown more generally? We want to hear from you all hour as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. What do you think of the proposed changes to Detroit's skyline? And what do you think of the process that we go through when we decide to build a new building 
in downtown Detroit. Let's start with this, though. The city of Chicago really carefully considers what its skyline looks like. Community meetings precede zoning clearances, and the process can take months when a developer decides to build a new skyscraper. Recently, Donald Trump's new tower along the Chicago River raised concerns, first about its architecture, then about the humongous Trump sign that was affixed to its side facing those boat tours that skim along the Chicago River. Another planned skyscraper in Chicago was cut down in size after city planners decided it would alter the skyline too much and in a negative way. Or think about what happens in Washington, D.C., where every new structure is measured against its effect on the old. Nothing taller than the Washington Monument, for instance. Nothing garishly clashing with the old federal style of the buildings downtown. Here in Detroit, we've always handled those issues a little differently and with much more deference, I think, to the developers who want to build in our downtown. Still, we have a skyline that is marked by signature architecture and style. So how should we be thinking of proposals to influence that style with new buildings? Should we be more exacting when it comes to proposals for new buildings like Dan Gilbert's planned tallest in the city skyscraper on the old Hudson site. That's where we want to start the conversation right now, talking about how we decide what gets built in Detroit and how it must fit in with everything else. And joining us to help lead that conversation is Robin Boyle. He's a professor of urban studies and planning at Wayne State University. Also here is Dan Kincaid. He's an architect and head of urban design for the Smith Group here in Detroit. Robin and Dan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, and again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We've already got a lot of folks who want to participate in this conversation. We're going to get to you guys in just a minute. But let's start with uh, with you, Dan, uh, as an architect. Uh, I'm really curious about your sense of what defines Detroit's skyline now and the process that we go through uh, when we add to that skyline and whether it looks the same as it does in other cities with significantly uh, defined skylines. Why why does it seem like Detroit is handling these things very differently from Chicago or Washington or other places where it seems harder to do these kind of things? Right, right. Well, I think many cities uh, engage this kind of development in different ways. Um, and so to to be for Detroit to be, for instance, different, uh, from from other cities and how they how they develop uh, tall structures is is it makes sense at some level. Um, I think it's also important to think that um, as as Detroit is is going through its its kind of shift and its growth and uh, in, in with burgeoning development, which I think we all generally see as a very good thing, uh, as long as we do it in a way that's accommodating uh, diverse perspectives and is doing so in a way that's, that's equitable and accessible and so forth. Um, we're also seeing that uh, as it comes together, it's set within the context of one of the largest collections of pre-Depression era skyscrapers in the United States. I think a lot of people forget about that, that mm-hmm. that kind of that historic integrity is woven within. And it's really, you know, coming back to the early kind of banking and auto industry that set that up yeah. uh, in Detroit. In fact, the, the building that I work in, the Guardian building designed by our, our firm a while back, is part of that kind of lineage. I think today, though, as you integrate new structures into it, you're seeing... Um, 
what's happening in Detroit also taking place in other cities, whether that's uh, Boston and new development there, particularly on the South Waterfront mm-hmm. with really dynamic stuff with innovative uses, or in Philadelphia within the, the center city, uh, some big development driven by, by Brandywine, um, or, or in other markets. Uh, it's happening in a lot of places because capital is more readily available. The capital stack is clearly defined. People are stepping into that fray. I think it's a moment for Detroit to really harness that energy and certainly to to drive development in a way that's different than what was being articulated at the start of the show. The late, you know, in the 70s and 1980s models of these kind of John Portman-esque fortresses, <laughs> they have to be different. And I think the public and the design community is ready for something different as well. Yeah, so so place Dan Gilbert's proposed tallest in the city skyscraper on Hudson's in that context. Yeah, I think that uh, you know you look at the you look at the the design itself and the the, the modifications that it went through with their with their design team. I can't speak to the details that they they got into between uh, the, the client and the architect on that, but I, I can tell you that the way that it engages the street, uh, the way that it it actually relates to the buildings surrounding it, it it is an urban structure. It engages the city directly. It is fundamentally and diametrically opposed to what took place along the Renaissance At Center. the Renaissance, yeah. Absolutely, right? It's right there. It's a zero lot line. It's right in a tight site. And it's exactly what we need in that space. Look, as a kid who grew up uh, riding his tricycle around the 12th floor of, of Hudson's building. As my mom was an advertising writer there. I would love to see the Hudson's building. I think many of us would, right? But uh, it's not but there, But that's right? gone. It's right? gone, and this is coming. And I, and I think many of us look at it as a really, a really hopeful sign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robin Boyle, I'm curious uh, about your thoughts about the Detroit skyline and the proposed changes. Are we doing this in a way that's thoughtful enough about our history uh, and, and about our future? Well, first off, I think it's we we need to know what we're talking about. Here we are sitting on a snowy Monday morning in 2018, talking about the issue of a large building getting put down on Hudson site on Woodward Avenue. Five years ago, we wouldn't even have been mentioning it. Right. Even this is amazing that we're actually having this discussion that you know, brings us back along with the other cities that that, uh, Dan has just mentioned. We're we're back in the same conversation as Chicago Loop and uh, the uh, developments occurring in the waterfront in Boston and the like. So point number one is that it demonstrates that the market is beginning to come back and beginning to come back in such a way that they're prepared to take a piece of of ground and put, what, 800 feet of uh, 55 stories on a particular site. So number one, I think it demonstrates that um, we're beginning to see some market change. My point, however, to start with, I think, is that, you know, we've been here before, and this is a conversation that many, many cities have gone through, uh, not least Detroit over the years. There's been discussion about how the um, the city's skyline would evolve, and, and, uh, and as, as the earlier uh, comment from John made, um, the biggest impact, of course, was the Renaissance. But I think he made a point at the end of it that was really important. If you isolate these developments and put them on um, big podiums that are not connected to the street, then they do become um, eyesores. They, 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 they become separate from the street light. But if you go to a place like Vancouver or downtown Toronto, to mm-hmm. take two Canadian examples just north of the border, um, you can see how these tall buildings can be beautifully integrated into the city. Now, it creates its own problems of scale and congestion and and, and, uh, street activity, which is both positive and negative. 
But if you get it built onto the street, then it can have a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I said, we've got a lot of folks who want to participate in this conversation. We're about to get to you. And if you want to join the conversation here on uh, Detroit Today, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. What do you think is significant about Detroit's architecture, design, and skyline? And do you think we should be thinking a little more exactingly about changes to that skyline? Are we rushing ahead too fast uh, to, to embrace development that we think will make us feel all of that sort of energy, that positive energy that we think is uh, caroming around Detroit uh, right now. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Mike in Chesterfield. You're up first on Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Mike? Good, good. Um, uh, just wanted to say thank you for uh, mentioning John Portman. Um, you know, he was a good, uh, good architect. And uh, thank you for having your guests on. It's important that we talk about architecture once in a while. And um, sure. one of the things I want to um, talk about real briefly is, uh, have you, uh, this article had come out around the time I was born in the early 90s. It was, uh, I don't know if it was the Detroit News or Detroit Free Press. But it was a, um, a series of illustrations called Unbuilt Detroit. Huh. And um, with that, it was it showed a bunch of skyscrapers that were proposed during um, from the 1920s until the 1990s and uh, that were never built. But they, they were able to fit them into the skyline, and it was a drastically different-looking Detroit. Wow. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the examples that they did have was that the Fisher Building is un, uh, is vastly incomplete. Is unfinished, yeah. Done. And um, and that the um, original intention of the Book Tower mm-hmm. that was supposed to have on the opposite side of the current tower was supposed to be an eighty-story uh, skyscraper that was briefly the most building in the world. Wow! Wow! Yeah, Mike. I you know I I've never heard of that. Uh, you say it's a book that that or it was an article that that uh, it was it was an article. Um, I don't think you can find the article anymore on uh, online, but you can if you Google uh, "unbuilt Detroit," there will be some images that do pop oh. up, and you can see uh, some of these illustrations. And it's it's an amazing look at it. And I was hoping if guests can um can say whether or not sure. looking to the past of failed projects can lead to a better uh, future for future projects. Yeah, yeah, uh, Mike. Thanks very much for that heads. I I don't remember that uh, that article, but we will try to look it up and put it up on the WDT Facebook page for uh, listeners to to take a look at. That that that's an interesting way to think of our history. I guess is is the things that could have happened that didn't. The the Fisher Building I know about. Uh, you know, I've seen. Uh, the plans that I know that the crash uh, in 29 stopped them from from rebuilding that uh, Midtown would look de- uh, dramatically different if if we had done that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It, it would have. And I think, uh, you know, many, many cities have a similar story behind them, um, uh, development that that uh, just never came to fruition. And in many other places, it, it, it isn't. Um, it isn't such a kind of potent topic because uh, they may not have the same f- sense of kind of vacuum and development that we've had for the last, say, 30 years. Uh-huh. Uh, here, it's, it is certainly something different. But I, I think that what's equally as important 
uh, about what could have been around these places is what's happening now mm-hmm. too, and, mm-hmm. and and that's a pretty amazing story. And to, to have that the, the, this new development be um, uh, driven within a moment where there's um, greater awareness of how these types of buildings impact their surroundings, how they need to engage the street, how they must support employment opportunities and equity and access and so forth. I think that's a that's a remarkable thing, though, that we can be conscious of those things as we drive major capital development in in cities. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this takes takes hold. I, you know, if you look at the platform and, and the building they own, the Fisher Building, as we, you're highlighting here, mm-hmm. you look just to to the west of that and their their project at uh, at Third and Grand. You know, th- this is a, a lower lying building. It's not quite as tall, yeah. but it but it but it's quite formidable. And this is some of the new or the first development out of the ground outside of uh, greater downtown we've seen in a long time. Those to me are, are the things to really celebrate right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robin Boyle, uh, what do you think of the things that we, the opportunities we missed? Sometimes well, I think I'm, about uh, Detroit's downtown and it looks, it looks really different like from the sky, for instance, if you're, if you're flying into Metro uh, than, than other downtowns, it looks a little more compact. I mean, and, and we've, Done some demolition, of course, of of important buildings in downtown Detroit. But but thinking of it in terms of what we could have built, I guess, uh, gives us a different a different vantage point. Indeed, uh, I I think uh, Dan's point is very very valid because we were one of the major development sites in that glory days of the beginning of the 20th century when um, we, we were able to attract those wonderful architects to, to do these buildings that really came to a grinding halt in 1929. And really not much in terms of high-rise was built with the exception of two or three buildings downtown, including Portman's uh, Rensen. And therefore, we ended up with this very tight development. The only one, of course, um, that was slightly different, and you see that when you fly over, uh, is, is the Fisher Building in, in the new centre, that sort of alternative downtown that got started, but then again also came to a, a, a grinding uh, halt. I, I think another element we need to think about, however, is, is as we're seeing in San Francisco today with Salesforce and the building they're putting up, and indeed with, with uh, Dan Gilbert, is this idea of what um, subject the, uh, uh, the British architect commentator called the edifice complex you know <laughs> mine's bigger than yours so i'm going to build it right and um, and we've seen quite a lot of that over the years and i think we're going to start to see more of that as, as as we get development moving but coming back to your original question i think detroit is distinctive and and i would like to think that we we can actually see that um concentration of high rise be contained within that downtown uh, sort of uh, loop of freeways and i think that would be a strong element for, for reconstructing the downtown and, and allowing other development to occur, but perhaps not at, at the same scale. And I think we would we would start to see a, a very powerful sort of downtown high-rise cluster, yeah. which is something that would be um, significant for Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Karen on Twitter says, Detroit's skyline has iconic buildings, but a lot of them were built 60-plus years ago. Adding to those structures will be controversial no matter what. Add Dan Gilbert and opinions become Heated. I think the Hudson site building is unnecessarily tall, but that's just me. Karen, I, I absolutely sympathize with that uh, point of view. I, I am not sure why we need the tallest building in the city to be built right now on that site, but uh, but I've heard a lot of people speak back to me about that and say, well, why not? Uh, and that, that, I think, ends up being uh, the sort of driving force behind these things. And, and as Dan Kincaid 
pointed out, uh, it, the, the design for the building seems to fit the space and, and things like that. Uh, I, I, I am always skeptical of the, uh, uh, the, the race, I guess, the arms race to build the tallest building, especially in a downtown that still, despite all the efforts that Dan Gilbert has made, we still have a fair amount of fallow, I guess, uh, is what you'd describe them as, uh, skyscrapers sitting around, places that are not fully functional or uh, or are still pretty empty. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can tell us about what you think about uh, Dan Gilbert's uh, proposed skyscraper. Tell us what you think about uh, Detroit's skyline and how it may be changing. Um, uh, give us a call and and tell us what you think. Uh, Dan and Robin, I want to I want to ask you about this tallest, this tallest uh, uh, phenomenon. Uh, that is one of the things I think people are going to react to with Dan Gilbert's proposal: the idea that it's going to be just a bit taller or just enough taller than the Rensen to to capture that spot. Is that a reason to be skeptical of what's going on? Mm. I, I don't think skepticism is, is is the right word, but but I think being aware that. Um, Height control and and uh, uh, the notion that that height is in play is something that we've had for you know many hundreds of years. If we if we think of what how other cities were built uh, earlier in your show, you mentioned Washington, Paris is another is another famous example. There's a lot of stories about Philadelphia that you weren't allowed to build above the height of City Hall, right? And and William Penn and all that, which of course has has, has gone away. But I I think we do need to recognise that if 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 it's a developer market. And, and there are relatively few controls, then developers will will push the envelope, if I can use that uh, that cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing it all over the world. Um, the Freedom Tower went back up into the uh, into that site in Lower Manhattan, and is now the tallest building in New York at uh, what I don't know over 1,700 feet. And uh, the, the the tower in Chicago, is, uh, what do we call it? The Willis Tower now, I think. Mm-hmm. Is is the biggest in in the Midwest, and uh, and Dan wants to go above um, uh, the Marriott Hotel in in, in the Renton. I think if you if if you open up uh, uh, the market and you have this encouragement of development that we're seeing, and I think correctly seeing in Detroit, then you're going to get this race to the to to the sky. Yeah, go ahead. Dan. Yeah, I, I would just I would echo uh, Robin's points, and I would say as capricious as it may seem that you go ab- above that, or or maybe the motivation seems not what you would expect it to be, just to be a little bit taller. I think the important thing to keep in mind is where Robin's going with this is that, is that there's the, actually the ability to do it. And I think yeah. many folks outside of the design industry uh, or development industry would be probably surprised to know how some of these decisions are made. You know, there, there is a lot of detailed number crunching and financing behind these deals. But at the end of the day, you're also trying to identify certain strategies and justifications for doing what you want to do. And I think here we need to keep in mind also that Detroit has had a, a really limited, remarkably limited supply of Class A office space for a really long time, a ton of Class B uh, for a while. And so now as so much development's happening, or at least uses within these buildings downtown, I also think there's a strong, strong need for this Class A office space. So yeah. more is going to be good. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Karen in Detroit. Karen, you're up next on Detroit Today. Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. I wonder if the guests could talk about the impact uh, on traffic along Woodward. The highest building in Detroit would have a lot of occupants. 
and Woodward with the Q1 rail has no opportunity for expansion. He's got a tremendous increase in occupancy in that area, and I don't know what traffic management has been done, but that would be a major concern because you also have other uh, big businesses coming along Woodward, just uh, north of that building, the headquarters for Illich, mm -hmm. the Mike Illich School of Business, and um, if anyone has been downtown during any of the <laughs> sports games, you yeah. know, traffic is... Traffic is getting crazy, isn't it? It's gotten very crazy. So yeah. I I'd like your guests yeah. to respond. No, I think, yeah. Karen, I think that's a yeah. great question. I will, I will also sort of add to that question uh, an issue that, that, that I've been raising since the queue line opened, which is why Woodward is open to car traffic at all below the stadiums. I mean, I think if you look at, uh, as Karen's pointing out, if you look at the way that the things that we're already doing have affect, affected traffic down there, it's really sort of a mess. And what's more important, especially in the sort of modern thinking of downtowns, than car traffic is foot traffic. And if you were to close Woodward to car traffic south of the stadiums, I think uh, this might work. A little better, but then anytime I bring that up, people lose their minds. I will also, <laughs> I will also say that. Uh, so, so well, go ahead and 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 answer. Uh, well, let answer me take. Karen. Go uh, ahead, Stephen. Let me take the first cut at that. Sure. Um, I, I was in uh, Chicago between uh, Christmas and New Year's, and um, they are a city that has continued to build and has a significant amount of downtown development, and you know the place works pretty well. I think a couple of points to make. As the city encourages this development and as the market responds, then similarly, we should be demanding that the city authorities, particularly the, um, uh, the planning department and, and any other elements that are concerned with the regulation, similarly beef up their regulations and get involved in making sure, quite sure, that as these developments come, and we want them to come, the market needs it, the market wants to respond, but as it comes that we have um, upgraded, modernized regulations that can keep and organize the movement of traffic and the movement of people on the, on the street. I, I think we've got a street system that can cope. Um, we're still not used to seeing dense, um, the, the density of, of cars and people that other cities have, but we've got the street system that I think can make it work. And we've certainly got the parking. We've got tons of parking. There's a lot That's of not parking. An issue, yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly uh, on the west side of um, of, of, of Woodward. So I, I, I understand the, the caller's concern. I understand it. But I think we've got the opportunity to really make this work well. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah, I would agree. And I think in some ways... Um, this kind of development uh, or the greater density uh, in, the, in the downtown also starts to induce the, the types of uh, systems um, that we need to better circulate around, around the city. I think without them, we can kind of pontificate on, wow, wouldn't it be fantastic to have this expanded rail system or to do this or to do that and, and try to pass them, you know, for instance, in <laughs> certain measures uh, through elections. But there's nothing more motivating uh, than to have these things happen and for people to realize, wow, okay, uh, our city's growing again. There's a lot that's happening. We're seeing this development come in. The only way, really, that, that, uh, that I can get around is to actually have uh, alternative forms of transit. And, and that, that is a really powerful motivator. And so I think in some respects, that's a very good thing. You just don't want these two things to get too far out of step with one another. I think the, also the good news is that we have you know, mayoral administration right now that recognizes that. And I think uh, sharp leaders who have who bring to the city a tremendous amount of experience. If you look at our planning director, like Maurice Cox, 
he's going to be on this and probably is already on it to address these issues. I, I see this as a, as a good thing. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about downtown, the skyline, and the way that it is changing. And, of course, we want to keep hearing from you, 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. Casey and Warren, Paul and Pontiac, Tom in Northwest Detroit. We'll get to you. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about Detroit's skyline, its history, and its potential future. Lots of changes on the boards for that skyline, starting with the tallest in the city building that Dan Gilbert has proposed to build on the former Hudson site. What do you think about those changes? What do you think about how they interact with the skyline itself, the history of our skyline, the sort of architectural signatures of our skyline, should we be thinking more deeply about how we want to change that skyline before we go ahead and green light these projects? Uh, what should we be considering with these new skyscrapers? And can a city government manipulate how these things work? We see that working in other Cities, how much should city urban planners be stepping in and whose vision should be the one that dominates? We want to hear from you about that this hour. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will work you into the conversation. I want to thank Robin Boyle, professor of urban studies and planning at Wayne State University. He was with us for the last segment. He had to run, uh, so he's no longer with us on the show. But still here is Dan Kincaid. He's an architect and head of urban design for the Smith Group here in Detroit. And again, the number to join the conversation is 313-577-1019. Let's go to Casey in Warren. Casey, welcome to Detroit hey, Today. Good hey. morning, Stephen. Good morning, Dan. You know, the, the story about Detroit urban planning, I think it all goes to one, missed opportunities, and just really horrible timing. Um, I want to say that the genesis of it might have been going back to the scuttling of Olympia uh, Arena in favor of Joe Lewis. <laughs> they said Olympia would only last another 30 years. Well, Joe Lewis was only projected to last 30 years. <laughs> I, it, the Stroh's Brewery, an icon I'm sure you and me, Stephen, we can enjoy, and uh, we have uh, fond memories of. Uh -huh. uh, I just look at it the way... They've really underutilized the lakefront. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to, like you say, the urban planning, I was in Australia in 92, and I happened to go to a friend's uh, sister's high school, what they call high school class, and they were talking about urban planning. And instead of Detroit being the example of what to do, it was the example of what not to do. Wow. And it was interesting. They, they called it the Renaissance Center. And I was like, no, it's the Renaissance Center. <laughs> it was supposed to be a Renaissance, but they really – misallocated funds in the wrong way. They absolutely scuttled neighborhoods in favor of a core that was corrupt. And I, I even talked with Mayor Dugan about this, about the fact that I've been to 41 countries and, this, and I've seen so many cosmopolitan cities. And what they all have in common in the United States and around the world is they have an, a Chinatown, an oriental area, 
And I think we really missed an opportunity between Hamtramck and Highland Park. We're too fractured. You know, yeah. you've got to consolidate That's and make a city a city. Yeah. Make it an enclave of Chinese. I, I think we really missed our opportunities, you know, in the 70s, late 70s, 80s, and 90s to really put money and have it go forward and not get flushed down the, down the, down the river. And we, yeah. we need more marinas between, you know, uh, Joe Lewis and the bridge. But why not turn Joe Lewis into an aquarium? Most cities have an aquarium. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. I think well, we have fantastic. one on, we do have one on Belle Isle, Casey, but, but I hear what you're saying. That is not like what uh, other cities have. A lot to unpack from what uh, Casey was saying there. But but this this question of the riverfront, first of all, I think is, is, is yeah. really interesting. And then things like Joe Lewis and Olympia, I mean, the, these were mistakes, I think, that we made. I'm not sure that you could have made the case to keep Olympia given the, the, the changes in sports that were underway. But the idea of uh, an arena in a neighborhood outside yeah. the core of the city, that worked for a long time in Detroit. They decided that it couldn't work. I'm not sure that was the right choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I would certainly agree. And I think uh, while you know the, the the caller's points are 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 great and 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 uh, voluminous, I'll try to address some of them. Uh, I think in some ways, you know, the, the issue with Olympia is symptomatic of a larger kind of decision making process and ethos at a certain time, rather than a cause of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I also think you know this point about Detroit being held up as the as the kind of bad example of urban planning. We, we we've all I think collectively been in those experiences before, probably several times. Where our city had been brought up in this in this light, and I think for very good reasons. I think the caller also brings up issues of of um, uh, drive times, disconnected nature of the city, and so forth. I think we have to all all the things that we have and continue to aspire to have in our city require density. They require people. They require the sharing of goods and services and ideas. This comes through agglomerating economies, which is a fancy way of talking about places where. People share ideas, they share money, they share space. This is what really makes um, cities hum. And if you look back at the, particularly from the the 1940s, post-World War II into the early, mid, and then even the late 1950s with the major policy decisions that were made at a federal level and then at a local level, and the way they impacted our city, particularly through the Federal Highway Administration and others, those impacts were unbelievably powerful. And I think we're still feeling with the dealing with them today, which is why then we also have this issue where every time we bring up development, we're also bringing up the parking pinch. Mm-hmm. And and I can tell you that, that as we look at different projects in and around the city, this comes up all the time. Well, how are we going to handle the parking? What are the ways we're going to move people around? So I do think we're at a point where we kind of retroactively have to fix the machine a bit. I know there are a lot of people that are looking closely at this, and I'm I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm really excited by it um, because we've not been at this point before. So I think people should should be hopeful here. I think we should see this again. All this activity is an opportunity to induce uh, the right things uh, for us going forward. Yeah, yeah. Peter on uh, Twitter says, we let developers do what they want because we're just so thankful that anyone's building at all. Uh, We just hand them the keys. We need to apply some pressure to see to it that another fortress or something just ugly or incongruous isn't built. We deserve that. Uh, I, I think Peter raises an interesting point there, which is um, uh, this idea of a fortress, right? Uh, the, the Rensen. That is the thing that sticks out in, in everyone's mind in this community. Yeah. I think uh, that the mistakes that were made with that building. And I think when Dan Gilbert says, well, I want to build a, a super tall building 
on the Hudson site that that you know the, the fear of repetition there of of doing that again jumps into people's minds. Now the designs, as you point out, for this building are really different, and it's yeah. you you can see how much the mistakes of some place like the Rensen have influenced the decision making in this new Hudson site building. Um, but but there does have to be this this I think further consideration of how to make it welcoming, how to make it part of downtown instead of something that just sort of sucks everything into it right. and and never come out. Yeah, I, w- I would completely agree, and I and I think that is the good news here that the you know the building is contextual. It it it, it addresses the street directly, um, and, and you know the. It, for many of us in the the design and planning community, uh, our education um, was based on understanding what went so wrong with projects like the Renaissance Center. And I should tell you also that you know most folks would, as depressing as that project may have been at one point, they would probably be taken aback by the fact that if you went to Atlanta, you'd see almost the exact same thing mm-hmm. down there in a, ho- mm-hmm. in a hotel complex. If you went to L.A., L.A. See, has one, right? yeah. They, they are all over the place. So John Portman, um, uh, there's a great quote by by Rem Kuhas, a, a European architect. He said he had a, he had a book on him, and he said um, uh, John Portman said about John Portman in a book written by John Portman <laughs> that uh, architecture is frozen music, right? So he had these these really crazy, archaic, and just nonsensical statements that he would make. And I think this kind of came out in the architecture. I think that um, what we recognize is that the way that that project was built. Everything about it is it it, it, it doesn't work. It can't yeah. help our city, and I think now we're seeing fundamentally different and decisions we, we, being we made. We keep trying with the Renson. I mean, uh, you know, they've taken those berms down. They, they, yeah. they happened a long time ago. The inside has been uh, not redesigned, but sort of, uh, I guess, remarkered in a way yeah. is to make it a little easier to get around. But it's still this this place that sucks everything in and doesn't speak to anything else. Around it, I mean, even yeah. that that riverfront uh, uh, plaza that they've built um, seems disconnected from the structure itself. Yeah, there is a little bit of a disconnect there, but I think your 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 point going to the riverfront is a really good one. You know that in some ways the work that General Motors did to re- to recover that building and the work that was done to help the navigation and so forth. I have to admit, every time I go there, I still get a little lost, if not a lot lost. Uh, but to now open up the the front to the river, right? You see it, which mm-hmm. which, which helps you kind of navigate, and it makes it much more accessible. But I think your point about the riverfront is a really important one, and I want to I want to have a counterpoint to the focus on vertical development to also talk about the ground plane and horizontal. That's the other thing that's happening in the city right now, and it may not be the main topic for today, but it shouldn't uh, be isolated from this. In that. We are seeing big investment along along the riverfront, ideas yes. around Inner Circle Greenway, the Dequinder Cut, a whole host of things that I know some of my colleagues have worked hard on. And I'm excited to see all those things come together. And I think if we see them in a total total kind of package compositionally, then it gets really exciting. Yeah. Andrew on Facebook says, I like that Detroit is finally getting a significant addition to its skyline. I've never been a big fan of the Rensen with its fortress-like architecture. I just wish this new building would incorporate a few tips of the hat to the Art Deco style so prevalent in downtown. I think that's another thing that for me, when I look at the renderings of this new building, it just sort of jumps out as a, mm, I'm not sure. It, it looks so different from everything that, that I identify with on the, on the, on the skyline now, including, uh, including buildings like One Detroit Center, which mm-hmm. is not old. Uh, it was built in the 1980s, I think, uh, or 90s. I might have been in college when they did that. Um, uh, that gave nods to Detroit's past in the way that it looks. This new building 
right. is pretty shiny and new and sort of futuristic. And maybe right. maybe that's part of my problem with it. I don't know. Per, perhaps. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, certainly. But I, I would say, look, I think we... Uh, historicism in, in, in architecture and reflections on the past have always have always been there in some some way, but I think you know if you look at the, the buildings that have been built that are that are of their time, look at the Guardian Building, right? Something that we that we universally hold up to be one of the true gems of Detroit architecture. It was really ahead of its time when it was done, right? The way it deployed certain facets of its Art Deco styling and so forth, narrowness of the form, all of that. I think to have buildings be of their time as they come up in cities will help to create a larger, richer uh, texture throughout. And I think we just can't hold that individual building by itself, but rather see it in the larger collection. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Levi in Southfield. Levi, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I, I first wanted to uh, say that I'm a big fan of your show. I missed you you. when you were on vacation. Don't go away again. (laughs) I got to take some time off every once in a while. No, no, (laughs) no. But I I, uh, I bow down to Dan Gilbert and give him the benefit of the doubt because he single-handedly saved downtown Detroit. Without Dan moving uh, 17,000 employees there, we'd be, you know, 10 years ago with with our old problems. Now we've got a bustling downtown that... People come to visit from around the country, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he did a he did a worldwide architectural competition for the Hudson Block. So, uh, why why reproduce buildings or a look from the 1920s, which was, you know, our last boom town when boom time when most of the buildings were built? Let's do something contemporary that that we can be proud of, and. Uh, whether he wants to be a few feet higher than another building, God bless him. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do have we do have a traffic problem, and we didn't have a traffic problem before, and so let's solve the traffic problem, but not stop development. Yeah, no, I think I think <clears throat> those are really great points, Levi. I really appreciate uh, the call. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit. Today. Well, happy New Year and welcome back. Hey. You know, a friend of mine says life is change and growth is optional. <laughs> and what I've heard about a world-class city is, is there's ingredients, noise, traffic, and congestion. Yeah. Traffic is a science, and it can be worked out in terms of what the lady was at call about, you know, the 800-foot, you know, building down on Woodward. But, you know, I'm not a, nowhere near am I an architectural engineer, but I saw the rendering in terms of, um, you know, the, the building that Mr. Gilbert wants to put up down there, and I'd say go for it because, yeah. I mean, Life, life has changed. Yeah, I mean, no, it if, is. And, and if you don't, if you don't change, if you don't go along with change, not just to go on for the first, going along for change's sake, but it'll just move right on over you. you. No, I, I, I hear you, Tom. I, I appreciate the, that sentiment, and I think a lot of people really feel that way. Quickly, I want to get to Paul in Pontiac. Uh, quick, quick comment here before we have run out of time, Paul. So my comment is. Developers never lose money on a project. So when you collaborate with cities and taxpayers, who ends up footing the bill for it? And my question with that would be, um, do we really need the space? Yeah. Uh, Paul, thanks for the the question and the comment. Uh, we're, We're out of time, so we'll have to get to that. Another time. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.